welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 80. Great program this week. Um, I'm very excited to talk about some of the subject matter. It's uh, it's an issue that's near and dear to my heart, and it's uh, certainly one that's directly relevant to all of us. Although, then again, aren't all my topics directly relevant to all of us? Come on, we all know they are. Anyway, um, let me do my pitch for Counterpunch real quick. Very honored to get emails from people telling me that they subscribe to the magazine because I've been badgering them about it for 80 episodes now. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to know that some people are, are getting that print magazine, helping to keep Counterpunch going, helping to keep print publications in general going. I mean, it's a, it's an outdated concept. I was on the train today uh, filled with like 20 two-year-olds, you know, coming back from St. Patrick's Day celebrations, and I'm wondering how many of them have ever even picked up a print magazine and read one, let alone one that's about anything that's not boobs, you know? So, you know, let's let's think about what it means to keep uh, alternative media going, to keep print publications going, and to be a part of Counterpunch's project, which really, in my view, is one of the most important spaces we have on the left, in the uh, in in the alternative media, one that is consistently on point. The kind of analysis you get at Counterpunch, I think, is indispensable in these times. And if you agree with me, of course, uh, a donation is also gladly uh, welcomed and appreciated. You can donate through the PayPal feature on the website. Pick up the phone, call Becky at the Counterpunch office. Um, we're not going to give out his phone number, but you can certainly attack Jeff Sinclair on Twitter and tell him I sent you. And um, Joshua Frank is also fair game. So uh, go after them. Tell them how much you love them, how much you hate them, how much you love me more than you like them. That's always appreciated as well. All right. Uh, and then finally, of course, my website, StopImperialism.org. I appreciate uh, any uh, extra visitors that I get to that site where you can follow some of my non-counterpunch work as well. Oh, and uh, the reviews. I really appreciate those positive reviews on iTunes, Google Play Store, Stitcher, the other platforms that I'm not going to name because I don't know them offhand. Um, that's always very helpful as well, spreading the word about this show. All right. Now, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm excited to talk with him. Uh, Dustin Belke is on the show. Dustin is with the Center for Media and Democracy's PR Watch. You can follow follow his work at prwatch.org. He's also, uh, I mean, he's all over the place. He's uh, published in The Progressive in these times, The Nation, Mother Jones, uh, many other, Salon, many other publications, but follow him on PR Watch. Uh, his work on education and uh, related issues, I think is top notch. That's why I have him on. So Dustin, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. It's, it's great to be here. Um, and I'd uh, first like to echo your sentiments about Counterpunch, and in particular the the paper version. Um, I'm a longtime uh, reader and fan, and uh, was a uh, new Alexander Coburn a little bit, and uh, really appreciate your history as well. 
Thank you for that. Very much appreciated. Um, all right. Uh, let's look at some of these issues. You've recently written about a number of them, but you know, I want to give people a place to start. So you had a recent piece entitled, and I highly recommend it. It was originally published at the Center for Media and Democracy's PR Watch, prwatch.org, and then I, I believe republished in a number of places. Uh, it was entitled Trump and DeVos Push Alec Privatization Scheme as Studies Document Voucher Failures. There's a lot there. If for the uninitiated, they might not know all of those terms. So let's begin by breaking it down. Uh, talk a little bit about what Trump and DeVos are doing, and I guess in doing so, help us to understand what ALEC is, A-L-E-C, and this privatization <laughs> scheme that you're talking about. Well, um, you know, for... Uh really a few decades now we've been seeing various kinds of privatization uh, schemes where public education is concerned. Um, they'll privatize the busing, privatize the food service, uh, that sort of thing, just kind of bite off little corners of it. But we're also seeing uh, really in the last 15 years or so, it has exploded these efforts to really privatize an entire school um and a voucher is is one way to do that uh that's essentially where the the money that a student would have spent on him or her in a public school follows that student to a private school which could be an existing private school or religious school or could be a brand new school that pops up just because uh there are vouchers available, and that can be new revenue for you know a storefront that never was a school before suddenly decides it's going to be a, a voucher school. So a voucher follows that student where he goes and, uh, as a result, leaves the school, the local school, where he would have gone. Um, and then there are charter schools, uh, some of which are fully public schools that uh, have a charter that allows them to not follow the standards that all the other public schools would have to follow. So um, let's say you want to focus on horseback riding. Um, you can have a charter school that uh, has has that emphasis and doesn't require as much math or English or something like that, but mm -hmm. a public charter school uh, is funded by the public. It's um, directed by a local elected school board. Um, it's public in every way that a regular public school is, except for this these exceptions. Then you have private charter schools, um, and in uh, Betsy DeVos's Michigan. 80% of the charter schools are private charter schools. And in, in that case, you have a private company managing the school, um, a private for-profit company uh, usually. And uh, it's not, there isn't a, a locally elected school board or any school board necessarily that's uh, governing the school. So it's uh, private in in most meaningful ways but it's not a voucher school in in that direct sense mm -hmm. um so 
we often confuse those three uh, different sorts of entities. Um, and so what, what appears to be happening, um, and this was uh, something Politico reported, uh, um, to get around vouchers and kind of what state by state there are different uh, hurdles that vouchers have to jump over. Uh, sometimes it's uh, the mixing religion and education um, or other issues. What what they're looking to do, it seems, is um, what they call <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Um, the the full name of it is uh, a federal tax credit scholarship program, um, which is just like a voucher, but basically a uh, company or a person can donate a, and I would put donate in quotations, donate an amount of money to some kind of agency that then transfers the money to a student who goes to a private school. The person who donates the money gets a tax credit for that amount. So not a, it's not that it doesn't reduce their taxable income. It reduces their tax by the exact amount of their donation. And then that money goes from this uh, nonprofit company in the middle, follows that student directly to a private school. Uh, so it's it's a voucher by another name, and it's conceived, you would think, to get around these sort of state-by-state -state hurdles where vouchers have been hung up mm -hmm. here and there. And so this, this uh, tax credit scholarship idea is uh, comes from ALEC. There's a and what ALEC is, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council um, and PR Watch and the Center for Media and Democracy have been tracking ALEC for years, and, and they're the, the single best place to go if you want to find out more about ALEC. Basically, what they were able to do is to capture a bunch of the model bills that ALEC uh, peddles to states. They're Again, they focus on state legislatures and um, bills that states will then uh, adopt and, and pass off as a as any other bill in a state. But the problem is it, it's they're the same from one state to a not the next. They're just these sort of cookie cutter bills designed to pass. Um, state legislatures so um, there's a, a bill in, in Alex sort of bill mill uh, we call it that uh, outlines these tax credit scholarships pretty much to the letter um, and uh, several states have pursued that in one way or another 
Right. Now, one of the other... That all makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to probe a little (laughs) bit deeper and kind of relate this to some of the other issues that that uh, that we cover here, of course, on this show, but in general that people uh, are are paying attention to. And one thing that uh, you didn't mention there that really needs to be highlighted, I think, for listeners is the fact that vouchers, just like charter schools, just like every other aspect of the privatization of public education, is in many ways is designed as a weapon to destroy the teachers' union. It's a, it, it is an attack on organized labor, and it's an attack on one of the more militant uh, uh, segments of uh, organized labor. The teachers and the teachers' union is traditionally uh, the, the leading edge of a lot of protest actions. They have a lot of clout, both uh, on the national stage and certainly locally in communities. And one of the, one of the obstacles to totally destroy Destroying and gutting public education historically has been the teachers' unions. And so if you want to privatize education, you have to undermine the unions. And this is this type of scheme is one of the ways in which they do that. And I'm just, you know, I'd like you to build on that if you could and maybe talk a little bit about some of the other ways in which uh, uh, organized labor as far as teachers' unions are under assault. Sure, sure. And uh, I'm talking to you from Wisconsin, um, which is where uh, the Center for Media and Democracy is based. So we know uh, a lot about that uh, particular subject. But um, anyway, that's sort of uh, where the distinction between a public charter and a private charter comes in. Yes, exactly. Um, If uh, if you're in a school, if your charter is based in a school district where the teachers are unionized, um, where they have fair share, then the teachers at that charter school are also unionized teacher teachers. Um, in the private charter schools, they don't have to be, and they're usually not, and uh, that's one way to do that. And of course, a voucher school is just a private school, and, and almost none of those are unionized. Um, so, yes, that's, that's certainly one of the impacts that privatization has you know and this idea has been around uh milton friedman cooked it up in 1955 uh was he wrote an article about it that was you know that bounced around and and was fed upon uh, in that sort of right-wing think tank uh media nexus and it 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 lasted, you know, they didn't give up on it. They, they stuck with it through, um, through the sixties, through Watergate, through all of those years when, uh, Republicans thought they were down and out. And, uh, when Reagan came to power, these ideas started to grab hold. And it was in the late eighties when Cleveland and, uh, Milwaukee adopted voucher programs and, and, They've now they have you know almost a 25 year or more than a 25 year track record. Uh, so another way to kill unions is uh, you know what Scott Walker did here in Wisconsin was uh, basically to uh, outlaw them in the state statutes. Um, there are. A ton of uh, topics that unions discuss, teachers unions in other states discuss. Uh, some of them are 
mandatory issues of bargaining. Some of them are allowed. Some of uh, other issues you can't bargain over. But in Wisconsin, uh, the law says the only issue unions and school districts can bargain is base wages up to the uh, consumer price index. So everything else is off the table. You can't talk about the school calendar or uh, the start time or um, how teachers will be disciplined or uh, what their rights are in terms of uh, uh, non-renewal and um, anything like that. You know, it was uh, it was treated by the governor and by the media to a great extent as a cost-saving measure uh, in a state that was in a budget crisis, but uh, it really had nothing to do with that because, again, the state controls the budget. Uh, they could have determined that teachers can't bargain health care, for example, and left the rest of their rights intact. So it, it was an effort to destroy unions to exactly, as you said, to get rid of this uh, political force that uh, Republicans almost always are on the wrong side of. Um, and I can say happily that that hasn't happened. There still are unions in Wisconsin. Um, they're uh, working hard. They haven't disappeared, uh, but they don't have as much uh, disposable uh, money to spend on uh, elections and campaigns as they did before and lobbying and things like that. So uh, has, the mission has been at least partly successful in this state, and uh, we understand it's being replicated in other states. Again, I think with Alex's help, they're drafting bills that other states can just sign on to and put in motion. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, one of the other ways in which um, the right wing sort of pr uh, school privatizers have really tried to undermine the union. Um, and I can say this from firsthand experience, having lived this process is the uh, the so-called Teach for America or teaching fellows or alternative certification uh, programs, which are basically fast track programs that uh, get, um, you know, talented young people out of college or out of grad school or out of other careers and other industries to come into uh, allegedly failing schools, particularly in schools in urban, uh, inner city urban environments, and uh, work as essentially temporary workers because the vast majority of them do a couple of years and then move on, and then a new crop is brought in to replace them. Now, obviously, this process is by its very nature a process of wage depression as, uh, as you're constantly cycling in first year and second year teachers replacing veteran teachers with new teachers and thereby essentially creating fractures within the unions where you might have young first, second, third year teachers whose interest is in wages rather than the pension, that they're willing to make concessions that older teachers closer to retirement might not be. And I witnessed this happen firsthand in New York City uh, in the late period of, uh, of Michael Bloomberg 
Kubrick's term, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010. I watched this process happening, and I thought to myself, good God, these people are devious, and they know what they're doing. Right. Well, absolutely. There's been, again, a well-documented, constant propaganda campaign against organized labor, against uh, labor rights, uh, against all of those things. And, you know, where schools are concerned, uh, again, you can trace that back to Milton Friedman in the 50s. but it really started in, to come to fruition in, in the neck, 80s. End up in your neck of the woods in Wisconsin, right? The Birchers and all of the far right wing oh, radicals sure. who it, were based up there. Right. Uh, we are the home of McCarthy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we're also fighting Bob LaFollette and Gaylord Nelson and, and Russ Feingold and Tammy Baldwin, but, uh, you know, we're also the home of. Scott Walker and uh, <laughs> you say that with such a uh, lower tone in your voice. <laughs> maybe people won't hear me. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, there's that very mixed history here. Posse comitatus. Um, you know, I think the things people have been talking about in this post-election, kind of about the conflict between. Uh, working class whites and poor whites and, 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 you know, people who live in cities or closer to them. We've been grappling with that and seeing that uh, in this state for, I, I think, uh, for a longer period of time. And I think, you know, if you look at Wisconsin relative to the rest of the Midwest, uh, our economy hasn't uh, grown in the same way that uh, the states surrounding us have. And uh, I, I think you you get those conflicts coming uh, closer to the surface where you have more economic deprivation and, and more people kind of fighting for crumbs and scraps. And I, I think that's part of the reason we're ahead of the curve if that's the right way to put it right. on a lot of those kinds of issues. Or, behind the eight ball or whatever metaphor you want to choose. Um, Beneath the we've, guillotine. We've been seeing these. That's right. Yeah. Um, and and Walker in that respect is kind of uh, the perfect governor for this state in that period of history. You know, he's uh, speaks to that uh, disaffected group very well, I think. Absolutely. And and this question of uh, teachers unions, I think, is very important because, again, speaking from my experience in New York City, um, you know, we had major opposition to a lot of initiatives that were put forward. Bloomberg, in his time, was unable to push through some of the more uh, reactionary and regressive privatizing policies that he wanted to push through. Uh, everything from you know uh, revamp teacher evaluation systems to pegging teacher salaries to test scores and the standardized testing model in general and 
and and reviews and discipline processes and many many other things the that that the teachers union because it remained relatively strong although the UFT I guess it's somewhat debatable but uh you know because of that fact they weren't able to get through the most reactionary measures now in much of the rest of the country though I wonder how much that really is the case and I guess the second part of that is what happens if the unions are truly busted? Yes, well, um, and no one else plays that role, right? Um, you don't wouldn't necessarily have to be a collective bargaining agent to to be the organization that unifies people who have these interests in common that are more more directly related to the profession, you know. But there's no uh, there aren't other organizations that do that nearly as effectively as unions do. Um, they are through the union members organize themselves and, and are able to speak with, with one voice pretty effectively quite often. Um, and if there isn't a union kind of providing that, that organizing initiative, uh, I don't know what would take its place. And in places where there aren't strong unions, we know, Nothing really has taken its place except maybe in in isolated uh, communities or cities you have, you know, effective uh, community organization groups that uh, are are able to organize around school issues. But to do it on a statewide scale or a nationwide scale, really unions are the only organizations that have been able to do that where education is concerned. And, you know, we still see this here in Wisconsin, where even if a union's membership is down, if uh, if the revenues are down, and, and maybe that union hasn't even certified, um, doesn't have even that minimum kind of base wage bargaining right, we see that the administration in those school districts, when they want to talk to the employees, when they want to talk to the teachers, they go to the union, uh, the union's leaders, and say, you know, what are people saying on this, and, and how do we kind of help them understand what the what the new uh, whatever it is, what the new uh, insurance plan says, what the what the new rules are for school start time, uh, when they when the bosses need to communicate with the teachers, they still turn to the unions to help them do that. Yes, exactly right. Um, okay, before we go to break, I just want to touch on one other uh, aspect of this that I think is important for people to, you know, not only to, to, to hear, but to kind of make this into a talking point because, you know, you find this debate happening around the dinner table or, you know, at Thanksgiving or whatever with family, friends, people who watch, you know, regular corporate media and stuff, and there is a, th- th- there is a number of mythologies, I have to say. One one of them being that charter schools are better than public schools. In fact, uh, the the I believe it's still to this day the most comprehensive study of uh, school achievement in comparison between uh, charter schools and public schools was conducted by Stanford University. I want to say 2009 or maybe it was 2010, mm-hmm. uh, in which they yeah. found in which they found 81 uh, percent. 
of charter schools perform at or below their public school equivalents. In other words, only 19% of the charter schools, which are better funded, have better equipment, have better uh, students in terms of aptitude, in terms of skill levels, and they don't outperform the public schools. That's one of the major myths. The other major myth is that public education itself has failed or is failing. I think that both of the, these these sort of twin myths, which are kind of interdependent, are at the heart of this entire privatization movement. Absolutely true. You know, and again, uh, they've uh, worked that message very hard. These these folks who want to privatize the schools, um, that has been sort of where their effort started is by undermining the public schools and, and uh, really creating creating a myth that they're bad and they're getting worse and that they're a lot worse than they used to be. Um, and uh, as you said, private schools, by and large, uh, the, the teachers there are not paid as well. Their benefits aren't as good. They're not necessarily required to have uh, teaching degrees or exactly. degrees at all necessarily. Um, and, you know, I think when amid this discussion, when people imagine a private school, uh, they're thinking of Andover and Exeter and, and, you know, that school in the Robin Williams movie uh, where everyone was uh, rich and, and really well-educated. That's not really what the typical private school is. I think typically people who send their kids to private schools do so because they identify with a certain religion and uh, they know that their kids can get that there and it's um, and and that's their right but it they're not necessarily sending their kids to those schools because they know that the math instruction will be better there or, or the English instruction or or whatever it is um, so you know that's been lost in this and I think even polls of the parents of private school students show that, that they they understand that uh, there's a little bit of give and take and that if, if they sent their kids to the public school in the neighborhood, there might be uh, better equipment, uh, more modern books, um, you know, more qualified teachers. That's the, the reality of the situation, but uh, that's not the story that the Heritage Foundation is telling. Yeah, and they um, won't and they won't tell you that the charter schools use all kinds of tactics to push out the lower performing students, the students with discipline problems, behavior modification plans and all of the rest of that that they use all kinds of underhanded mm-hmm. tactics to take as many of those students as they can, dump them into the public schools and keep only the better students for themselves so that when their test scores come back and when their final results come back it looks like they're a better performing school. This is something I witnessed firsthand. Uh, I know, you know, colleagues of mine who have lived through watching that happen to their own students. It is really a despicable practice that in many ways is at the very core of how charter schools operate. Right, right. Uh, you know, when you're loosed from the the requirements, the standards, the, you know, the, the things that experts have, uh, debated over and, and worked out over decades, um, 
that's what a charter school is, is, is an exemption from those things that we know work. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, nothing new is, is worthwhile, but a lot of the new ideas that charter schools want to focus on, you, you can do in public schools and public schools are doing. Um, just to kind of get back to some more of the, the negative effects that we've been able to find in these schools, uh, that was part of the text of my last article. Um, the New York Times sort of found three very recent studies showing uh, students who go into voucher schools in three different states, uh, Louisiana, Ohio, and Indiana, uh, do markedly worse after they get there. And in one case, uh, I want to find the exact language here. Um, so students um, in uh, trying to find this, uh, the students who uh, went into Louisiana's voucher school program um, got the, the their testing results on the standardized state test where they were required to take the state test in in these voucher schools they didn't just like fail to improve they got worse uh, public elementary school students who started at the 50th percentile in math in their public school and then used a voucher to transfer to a private school dropped to the 26th percentile in just one school year. Um, and Martin West, who's a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, said that they've never been negative effects measured like this in the, in the history of education research. Um, he said there the negative effects are as large as as I've seen in the literature is is the quote that he gave the New York Times. Um, you know, it's it's just really unusual when you focus on something to improve it for it to get uh, incredibly worse just in the scan of in the span of one year. Typically, maybe it just doesn't change and you can't measure an improvement or see one, and and that's what. A lot of the literature around voucher and charter schools shows nobody has been able to prove that that they that they help anyone. Uh, but now we have these studies showing that they they hurt not just the kids who are left behind in the public schools where there's now less money. They hurt the kids who take the vouchers and go into the private schools with them. I mean, they, in other words, they don't do any good for anybody. <laughs> except yeah. these private for-profit uh, school management companies. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. We're, we're overdue for a break, so let's take a quick break, and I want to pick right. it up right there because there's a couple of more points to touch on there. I'm chatting with Dustin Belke. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back.
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I am chatting with Dustin Belke. You should follow uh, his writings. They're very, very good. A lot of detailed analysis, a lot of good research there. Uh, you can find his work at prwatch.org. That's the Center for Media and Democracy's PR Watch. Lots of good stuff there. So, Dustin, um, before the break, we were talking about the negative impacts that were shown in, in a recent study, uh, negative impacts on student performance of vouchers. And that really kind of, in my view at least, it sort of backs up or, you know, legitimizes the conclusions that were reached in many other studies that we have seen of charter schools and of vouchers and of all of these various mechanisms of privatization that not one of them has demonstrated conclusively that it improves student performance, that it improves uh, whether that whether that achievement or performance is measured in standardized test scores or whether it's measured in some other fashion. We simply, the, the right. data simply shows the opposite, that it has a negative impact or no appreciable impact at all. That's right. You know, and, and for people who understand education um, and, have, you know, have been teaching, say, for a long time, that makes perfect sense that that, that there wouldn't be improvement um, or that there would even be negative effects when you, you know, you go from one school to another for no reason other than to move. Um, and, you know, education is, is a complex process, uh, but one of the foundational notions in the voucher privatization ethic is that the teachers and the administrators in public schools aren't trying hard enough, right? Um, so these this competition from private schools and, and charter schools is going to make them work harder to keep students, to keep the revenue, um, and to keep their jobs. Uh, that that all all we were missing was this uh, urgency, the sense of urgency and and effort on behalf of the teachers. And you know, everyone close to a school knew that wasn't the case. Um, and that, you know, dollars aren't what incentivize uh, schools to that degree. You know, there's not a one-to-one relationship. So, you know, the, the teachers, all the teachers I know work really hard and have a, take a lot of pride in what they do. Every in, single one of them um, that I know. Every just, single one of them. Just ripping money out of their school's budgets, uh, increasing class sizes, um, increasing the percentage of special needs kids does, didn't uh, make them better. It made them worse. Um, it, it, it spread them too thin, um, and it, you know it, they, it really has uh, hurt morale across this state. I know again talking about Wisconsin, and I think really across the country as they're constantly being hammered by these negative. Uh, accusations um, and just the existence of these programs is an insult to them, honestly. Well, that, but also, let's not forget that insult aside and morale aside, their jobs are now on the line in many places in this country based on these test scores. You have salary uh, schedules and uh, things of that nature 
pegged at least partially to test scores. Teacher ratings at the end of the yep. year are partially at least pegged to the uh, student test scores. And so, of course, if you're a teacher who works with a difficult population with uh, lower lower performing students for various reasons, that of course puts you at a disadvantage, and it and it uh, removes any incentive you might have to want to work with those communities. And then the second portion, and and this I would like to get your comment on because we haven't touched on this yet. Part of the privatization movement is also school closures, the closing down of public schools, so-called failing schools, and then replacing them with either charter schools or smaller, um, more, let's say, profitable uh, public schools that have partnerships with corporations and various other things. Many different tactics that are used to close down public schools, but see – the impact that nobody on the educate or not nobody but many people on the education side don't talk about is the impact on the community and the demonstrable negative impact school closures have on those communities so talk a little bit about school closures and how that is part of this broader privatization push well and uh, it's at the heart really of the the standardized testing uh movement is they want to create some matrix by which they can say that uh, teachers and schools are failing um, and then, uh, you know, use these numbers as the the reason to close schools. Um, and, you know, that end game was the motivation to begin with. If you look at the No Child Left Behind law, um, as it was first written, and uh, to a certain extent, as it existed throughout its life, uh, you know, it, it was a school, if its uh, aggregated test scores were under a certain amount, would be called a school in need of improvement and would have a certain period of time to improve up to a certain level. Uh, and these, these were impossible goals for a lot of schools. Uh, and the end result, at, at the end of that period of years, 10 or so, is that the school would be would close, it'd be taken over, and, and would be uh, become a charter school or a private school, you know, depending on the situation. And, and but then that school would have no requirements whatsoever. Once it's private, uh, it's there's no testing there. They don't need to improve. They, they don't need to, again, have uh, certified teachers working for them. It's just all bets are off once the school is closed. Um, and it makes transparent that that's what the, that's what the purpose of these programs is. Um, if, if all the schools in the United States were private, it would be the largest industry in the country. It would be bigger than Microsoft bigger than the auto industry. It would be the largest for-profit industry we've ever had. Um, and I think, you know, that huge uh, entrepreneurial opportunity is just too much for uh, so many of these companies that fund ALEC and a lot of these organizations to overlook. I mean, it's the reason they never gave up on the voucher idea even through through all those years where it was 
wasn't going anywhere. That's exactly right. Um, one example for people to uh, to look into if they're interested, take a look at, at the trajectory and development of the company Pearson to understand just exactly what school privatization really means. This is a company that is now worth billions, that is now at the heart of literally every single uh, – well – Maybe not every single, but the vast majority of curricula that are developed now across the country, the development of the common core standards and the curricula that align with those common core standards, the development of the tests and the testing materials and the supplementary materials that align with the common core standards, which align with the state standards and so forth. You can see what where I'm going with this. In other words, this company, along with a right. number of others, has essentially created a huge market for themselves that they're now exploiting and into the breach rush all these wall street banks the hedge funds the gates bill and melinda gates foundation many of these ngos that are tied to wall street money that also have dollar signs in their eyes when it comes to education that essentially this is as i think you were alluding to there dustin an untapped market and uh uh one other name uh, that needs to be mentioned is Betsy DeVos and her family. Um, they have uh, uh, my colleague Mary Batari on PR Watch uh, uh, wrote an article uh, kind of at the end of January, I think, about DeVos's links to a number of these companies again that that make money off of public education um, and. Uh, one of the biggies was uh, this uh, kind of a student loan collection organization. Of course, we're talking about higher education in this case, but uh, this company, LMFWF Portfolio, um, another performant financial corporation, they have invested in these companies, and uh, DeVos had to disclose some of this in her ethics reports and uh but as you probably know those reports weren't uh given to the senators until after her hearing um so th there wasn't a subsequent hearing where they could examine these links to all of these companies that are that depend on the privatization of public education and higher education yeah and and devos is kind of an interesting figure that we now have in in the middle of this uh, education debate because aside from the fact that she knows very little about education the, the 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 corporate connections that she has particularly to some very uh shady characters in the military industrial right. complex including the private mercenary groups like Blackwater I believe her brother brother was brother-in-law uh um, right. Eric Prince uh tied to a number of these Wall Wall Street hedge funds as well, and the the way the, the place where they all meet is through these front organizations for charter schools and for the charter school movement. I can't even name all of the organizations offhand, like Alliance for Good Schools or Alliance for Good Education or whatever it may be. These front organizations really act as the sort of public relations face of a very sinister uh, attempt to destroy probably the strongest longest lasting public institution in this country right um and you know 
maybe when you're as rich as as these people, it's inevitable that you'll have ties to all of these kinds of companies. Uh, you know, when you have that much money, it's always going to spill over somewhere, I guess. But it, it does seem um, uh, much more intentional than that, that uh, you have a pretty small core of incredibly rich individuals and incredibly large banks and companies that have focused their efforts on uh, – taking over the schools so that they can profit off of them. That's, That's right. really the only conclusion you can come to. Yeah, exactly. And and again, I think that this is part of an even of an even broader move. I mean, obviously we know the history of neoliberalism and and the the private, you know, privatizing everything possible certainly during the Reagan administration and so forth, but now it seems to be in uh overdrive. And one thing that I have to point out here and I I I harp on this on this show because I want I want to kind of make this a you know like a cornerstone of what we of what we do here is to point out that there is a seamless transition of power within the 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 system that runs this country namely you went from a democratic president president obama to a republican donald trump the so-called liberal to the so-called conservative right and yet you had a continuity of education privatization policy although it was more pr savvy pr friendly and and more in the shadows during the obama administration is when we really saw the implementation of a lot of these uh, um, methods for undermining public schools. It was the introduction of Common Core, the so-called race to the top, which I saw firsthand essentially as a form of blackmail over the states to accept Common Core and various other practices. Arne Duncan made his reputation in Chicago as a charterizer of public schools, as as a major proponent of charter schools. And so, you know, I think it's important to highlight, though there are certainly differences between Obama and Trump and the two administrations and the way that they go about it, at its core, the core policy is actually the same. That's right. Uh, you know, the the funding for charter schools uh, accelerated at an immense rate under Obama. Um, I wrote a piece for PR Watch in January of 2016 um that that sort of focuses on the charter school program within the education department and again we're talking about the the Obama administration's education department uh they've uh now given uh in total about 4 billion dollars to charter schools over the last 25 years um but the charter school program had this uh, PowerPoint presentation that it gave, uh, where it said it's uh, you know it spelled out what what the charter school programs within the Federal Department of Education's core mission is, and it was essentially to fund charter schools, to promote them, and to expand uh, the number of them throughout the country. Yep. Um, yep. Not not to make them better, not to make sure they're doing a good job, not to make sure the the money's being spent properly, but to to promote this idea, and that uh, that's you know that was the Obama Obama administration. I had a friend uh, who kind of responded shortly after the election to that article and said, you know, Dustin, 
if it's this bad under Obama, how bad is it going to be under Trump? Um, and again, I'm not saying it's not worse, uh, but at least kind of we're going to have this debate out in the open now. I yes, think. exactly. They're going to be – this is a talking point that privatization is a good idea, but it's uh, it's an unpopular idea in the general population. Whenever vouchers have gone to a referendum, uh, they've lost, even in Michigan where DeVos has dumped – her family dumps millions of dollars to try to rig the election they've lost there um in massachusetts in november uh there was a referendum to expand charter schools even public charter schools and that failed so you know maybe that's that's the sign of hope that we're looking at is that this administration is so brazen in its its extremism that everybody's actually going to have to confront this this idea that our schools are being sold off to private interests. And uh, as you said, they're the hearts of these communities in so many places. And if they disappear, there's nothing to take their place. That's right. I mean, if you go to, you know, North Philadelphia or East Brooklyn or, or Harlem or, you know, Chicago, you know, I, I only I'm not saying anything specific because I don't know Chicago as well as I know New York and Philadelphia. But uh, you go to certain parts in Los Angeles or Oakland or whatever. I mean, any number of uh, communities and large cities, medium sized cities, small cities where you have underserved, economically disadvantaged urban populations, whether they're African-American or Hispanic immigrant or what have you, you'll find that the schools are often the anchor of the community. And traditionally, you had people from the community working in those schools as teachers, as staff, as, you know, faculty, etc. And increasingly, you're finding that that is disappearing. A, the schools themselves are disappearing and closing down. Or B, the the method of importing teachers into those communities, as I was saying, teaching fellows, Teach for America, things like that, where you have predominantly white, suburban, higher, you know, higher education background uh, people coming into those schools in urban communities that they don't, that they're not connected to, that they don't fully understand the uh, structural issues uh, that, that abound in those communities. And then you wonder why the school becomes disconnected from the community and why ultimately the community doesn't rally to defend it. You can see how this is kind of this vicious cycle that has been you know, or like a right. feedback loop that's been created to sort of accelerate the destruction of both the schools and those communities. Right, right. And throughout that uh, span of time, you have this endless stream of uh, articles and news pieces telling you the school stinks and it's getting worse and, right. and everybody there is uh, no good and, and doesn't care. Yeah, you everybody. Know, every teacher's uh, that's lazy. Not helping every teacher's lazy. None of them do lesson plans. None of them. They don't care. They're racist. They hate the children. They whatever. They beat them. They you know any number of uh, vicious lies that I've seen. Now, obviously, everybody knows. As in any field, in any industry, there's going to be 
uh, employees that are better, employees that are worse. There's going to be higher performers, lower performers. That's true of any human activity. But the the public relations campaign is basically to paint teachers as almost entirely incompetent and almost entirely disconnected from their students and almost completely lacking in dedication, which if you know anything about teaching and education, the reality is exactly the opposite. Right. And and there's this pervasive myth that it's uh, once a teacher starts, they, they never leave and it's impossible to get rid of them, um, uh, you know, because the union, all it does is uh, protect teachers uh, when they're in trouble. But the reality is that every year you have about a 20 percent turnover um, of teachers who are in their first five years. So that's this self-regulating process because this is a very difficult job uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, um, and it isn't for everybody. Uh, So, you know, teachers go through the school of education, they land a job, they start doing this job and they realize uh, it's not for them. Um, And that's, again, as you said, bad and good. I think if, uh, if there were if we were more invested and more supportive of public schools, a lot of these young people wouldn't be leaving so soon. But on the other hand, you know, not everybody's cut out for it and they realize that and they get out. They don't need to lose all of their uh, employee rights and, and be ushered out because, because of their students' test scores or whatever it is. Yeah, and also it's, of course, incentivized. Teach for America, teaching fellows, things like that. They give you an opportunity to get a master's degree that is subsidized by a program that you don't have to you know, take out massive loans to get. It puts you on a career path that you can then move forward from there. I mean, I, as I said, I went through that. I lived it. I can tell you from my own personal experience, I know people who are still in education, people who have left education, people who have seen both sides of this process. And, you know, the people who have gone through it, I think almost unanimously, at least in my experience, come to the same conclusions about what these programs really are, that the programs are really about war against public school unions. Right. Those are uh, jobs, uh, you know, where it's the case uh, that would have been held by a unionized teacher, a certified teacher uh, who would have been a member of the union? Um, you know, people often compare compare that program to the Peace Corps, but the difference is, um, for the most part, uh, anyway, as far as I know, in the Peace Corps, people are uh, going in where they're needed and where no one else is is doing this work. Uh, they're not replacing uh, someone who's qualified and and veteran and and a member of a professional organization that exists to help them be as good as they are. Um, It's, it's different in, in that one key way. That's right. Okay. So we're just about out of time, but before we go, I do want to touch on one other, one other issue. And I, I, this is where I take some uh, hope on this issue. Uh, Like to try if we could to, finish this up on a positive note. Um, one of yeah. the one of the positive things that we have seen uh, emerging out of this 
major push towards privatizing public education and undermining and destroying teachers' unions is an increased um, militancy among at least some segments of unions. I know uh, that uh, famously over the last few years you had a – I guess you could call it a radical takeover, uh, democratic, of course, of the Chicago public school uh, union, the Chicago mm-hmm. teachers union. Uh, you saw similarly in places like Seattle. You've seen in New York City, you have the uh, the Moore caucus, the movement of radical educators or the movement of rank and file educators, excuse me, that essentially has mounted an insurgency within the United Federation of Teachers, the local of the American Federation of Teachers, the local for New York, which is one of the largest uh, locals in the country. Uh, You've seen this in a number of places where uh, rank and file uh, union members are fed up with their national union or their local union essentially rolling over for these privatizers and basically caving to the majority of their demands. And so the question is, as Trump accelerates all of these processes, and as you said, I think quite rightly, Trump being so brazen about it and him not being a you know smiling photogenic liberal like Obama or alleged liberal like Obama, but rather a, a, a quite open, brazen, bigot, war, warmongering fascist that he is, you know, uh, Trump is basically inviting us to radicalize further. He's inviting us to build an organized, radical labor movement within the teachers, you know, within, within education that can actually come together and stop some of these processes. So, so on the one hand there's a lot to despair about but on the other hand there are some things to get excited about i i agree uh you know and again chicago is pretty close to where i am um and uh you you very well described what happened there and again you know the uh, mayor at the time was uh uh you know obama's uh former chief of staff, you know, and that is the city that Obama came out of, the city that Arnie Duncan came out of. Um, the, those union members weren't cowed by the idea that they would be undermining uh, the Democratic Party by just standing up for themselves and their students and, and doing what they understood to be right. Uh, and and I think people are realizing that uh kind of across the country that really neither party when it comes to this one issue has teachers interests at heart and they have to organize for themselves and and speak for themselves and go directly to their communities where again people do not support these ideas these are um ideas that appeal to elites uh, within both major parties, but they're not ideas that appeal to a majority of folks. And I do have one kind of positive note to close on. Um, it's it's a mixed bag, I guess. Uh, in Wisconsin, uh, for about 25 years now, we've had these this law uh, called the revenue caps law, where uh, local school district revenues are capped at a certain rate relative to what they were 25 years ago. And in order to exceed that cap, you have to have a local referendum um, within the voters who live in that school district. And 
when this first started, you know, these were failing two out of three times, uh, two thirds of the time or so. And in the last several years, uh, they've been passing by overwhelming margins at an overwhelming rate. I think in fall in November 2016, something like 85% of these local school referendum, spending referendum initiatives passed. So, and, and these are not in, uh, you know, incredibly liberal, progressive, democratic voting districts. These are districts throughout Wisconsin, um, throughout our state, in places where Trump was getting 60 or 70 percent of the vote. You had these referendum initiatives passing with 60 or 70 percent of the vote. And, and understand these are people going to the polls and voting to raise their own taxes to, to give send more money to the schools. Um, so you had people voting for Trump and voting to raise their own taxes to support the schools in their community. Because, I I think that's a positive, uh, an incredibly positive idea going, you know, moving ahead is that that's what we're building off of. And people are understanding that uh, this is not a, a partisan issue. This isn't uh, an issue that uh, politicians should be able to demagogue over. Uh, this is our schools, our community, our kids, our teachers. Um, we can take ownership of these institutions and we don't have to rely on on politicians to do it. Yeah, indeed. And, and you know what that really is too, and this is also something that the privatizers will deny up and down, but it's true, namely that ordinary people to a large extent know exactly what the real cause of a lot of the school failure is and that it has nothing to do with the teachers it has nothing to do with the students it has nothing to do with anything but underfunding of those schools that many of these schools right. are simply underfunded in a systematic way especially schools that are predominantly black predominantly people of color uh, these schools are systematically underfunded year after year after year and uh, again you know I think that a lot of people regardless of what their political identification may be have a fundamental revulsion to the idea that their child is is going to an underfunded school. I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think when uh, you're talking about kids, and especially your own kids, a, a lot of uh, what you've been conditioned to think, um, you, you are able to ignore uh, because you know the the truth is right in front of you, right? Yes, exactly right. Okay, we're, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, unfortunately, but there's a lot more to discuss. Um, listeners, I'll just, I, I guess I should have mentioned during the show, but if you want to go back through the archives and try to dig it up, uh, my, my conversation a while back with uh, Gia Lee of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators touches on a lot of these same subjects, and author uh, Mercedes Schneider, who's written about a lot of these issues as well, uh, it would go, I think, a good complement with uh, the conversation that you just heard. Um, but again, Dustin Belke, I want to thank you for coming on the show. 
listeners, follow Dustin's work over at uh, the Center for Media and Democracy's PR Watch. That's prwatch.org. His work is excellent. I highly recommend it. Dustin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, as always, and I will speak to you again next week.